The theme for the evening talk is the impact that the world has upon us. <coughs> when we look in a general way at our life and our participation in it, we might say of the world and our relationship to it, two things. One is that you and I have our impact on the world, we influence it by our activities of body, speech, heart and mind, and these influences extend obviously near and far. But we, what we also notice in the interrelationship, interdependence of things too, that the world as we experience it also and equally has its impact upon us. And this mutual interfacing of you and I with the world, with each other, and the world that we live in has its, and leaves its, we might say, residue of impressions. And in our being in this world and in the constructions, the formations of our life, certain experiences, both past and present, have touched us. And sometimes events in our life from the world around us touched us more, more deeply than we perhaps realize. And it's one of the wonders of life, too, I feel, that some situations in life which would, by some measurement, appear very, very intense and, and dramatic and traumatic for uh, some people, and sometimes others, others of us have been exposed to such situations, and it's hardly born fruit, hardly left any real residue of impression with us. This extraordinary capacity of, of human beings who exposed to the same impact of events around one, one can be affected dramatically different from the other person. And similarly what we have also known in our, our life too, that small in, inconsequential, apparently inconsequential events, an odd moment in the vast passages of time, have touched us and have touched us in such a way that it's changed our way of thinking, it's changed our, our focus. And it's a remarkable thing in this world that as we move through our life, our, day, our daily life, we're in various ways very much under the influence and receptive more than perhaps we would like to be to the circumstances which are going on around us. And sometimes we notice with those circumstances going on around us, as I said, they leave an impression, and the impression stamps itself on consciousness. And there's a certain, we might say, tendencies, aptitudes, to, for these impressions to register in such a way that in the registration of them, they form what we call our personality. And our personality, the kind of person we are, seems to be very much related to our relationship to the world, the way that we interpret and experience the world, and the way that the world impacts on, us, uh, on ourselves. And so our life, as it moves through its rhythms and motions, we notice too that in ourselves, one day we can cope with the situation, we can handle it very, very well and deal with it effectively and, and wisely and thoughtfully. 
and another day, in another moment, another time, more or less the same kind of situation is occurring in our life and we find ourselves unable to cope, unable to deal with that situation. And our tracking of ourselves, our following of our rhythms in our life, notice, we notice too that the world is, is, sorry, is changing and impacting, but we also are. We also are engaged in the changing processes and it shows itself, one of the ways is through our capacity as people to cope with, with the sense data that comes to us. And when we're speaking of the, of the world, we're speaking of that which comes from our environment through to us and through the primary means of what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste and what we are touched by physically. This is our world. It's a world of five senses relating to us as a human being. And so if we're going to live with wisdom and intelligence in our life and clearly with our life, then our observation and our understanding of the life as it shows itself through the sense impressions, the colour, the formations to our eyes, the sounds to our ears, the smells to our nose, the taste to our tongue and the touch to the world, the environment, the hardness of things, the air, whatever. This is our life and it's all embraced in this and wisdom is ways that we can handle well and skillfully that which comes through these senses. And what we notice in ourselves, understandably as human beings because of, our, because of the fact of being born of the elements, that we wish to choose situations which are most preferable and most beneficial for what we see, hear, smell, taste and touch. We give an immense amount of thought and consideration to our life. We try to organise and control and direct our life so that the world of the senses touches us in a way which is pleasing and satisfying to us. And so we spend a great deal of time in our considerations of environment and, and economics and relationships and work and study and we look at the motives that, that are moving in and through that and very understandably it's to say to ourselves, I want to be able to see a world around me which I appreciate, to hear one, to smell, to taste and to be touched by one. That to me really, really matters. And it shapes and organises our thinking and our activities, our friends, our interests, our priorities. And yet we see that the realities of life, the diversity of it is that we can't live in a cocoon. We can't go back like a baby chick back into its shell and hide ourselves from the world around because it keeps reaching through us no matter how fortunate we are, how privileged we might appear because the world shows itself in multiple, fa multiple faces. So I wonder whether the priority in our life needs to be so much focus on having the sight, sounds and so forth to our pleasure and to what, what we would like and perhaps the focus needs to change and, and acknowledge the truth of the world and changing faces of the world and one which says rather than that let me find out what it is to live wisely, live intelligently in the face of sights and sounds, smells, tastes and touch. Because that's the world that we know.
That's the world which comes to us. That's the world which matters to us. And sometimes we notice in ourselves, too, that in our relationship to this, this myriad world, this extraordinary thing of life, that in our relationship to that, even amongst close ones, we have a kind of anticipation that things will go according to what one wishes. And sometimes our wishes are not in accordance with the truth of things, not in accordance with the nature. They're bound up as they have to be with the old impressions. Certain impressions from the past have impacted on me. Those impressions have left the residue. The residue shows itself in my feelings and in my uh, wishes and what I would like. And I carry that with me into the present. And I say, in my wishes, I want the world to fit in with them. And sometimes, even the most, almost as it would appear to ourselves, self-evident wish for something to be as we would like, as we would anticipate, just doesn't happen. And if there isn't wisdom in that, we find ourselves situations, countries, societies, groups, families, in complete confusion. Because we haven't understand that the tenability of a wish, the expectation, the, the, the uh, inclination towards what that which we would like may not be what life has in store. Let me give you a, a, a very clear example, a very clear example of what I mean. The person that I know and I have known for a considerable number of years recently in April found that he had uh, cancer and he, his wife had died some time before and he had five children and he was in a profession which gave him uh, a very good uh, salary. His home was worth something in the region of a uh, million dollars and he had several hundred thousand dollars in various investments. The five children, who I also uh, know and have known as well for many years, the five children, four of whom have moved, have married, have lived, living in other places, had anticipated as the family that upon the father who had um, made the will would be leaving and distributing the, the will, the resources in, in the will to to all of the family. And they had talked about this at the, at, the, at the funeral and said how helpful it would be and so forth before the will was read out. And come the reading, come the information with regard to the will, it was found that all of the house and all of the investments and all of the money had been left to one child. And the, what was left for the other four children in the will was that any of the other four children could go to the house and take a single piece of furniture. Can you imagine the waves in that family? <laughs> the pressure upon one member of the family who's received all, the, the one that stayed at home. And even though the others are all living within a 10, 15 mile radius, 
And sometimes in these situations like that, the, the, the expectation, the, like, the wish, the anticipation is all, all there. And then the barefaced hard news that what wasn't understood, what wasn't taken into consideration, that at some point the, had, the father of the family had made a decision and that decision was one of exclusivity instead of inclusivity. And now that family, those children, they have to deal with the circumstances of that and resolve that with the disappointment and the confusion that it's engendered. And I think that situation there and many other situations in our life is such that unless we begin to understand and explore wisely the ways of the world and our relationship to it, we're doomed in a way to heartache to disappointment, to not realizing the inner and the outer and the totality of things. And we expect, I think, all too often, and I think it inhibits joy and happiness in life, we expect far, far, far too much of people and equally far, far too much of ourselves. And every time we're disappointed, and every time we're hurt, and every time we experience regret, and every time we're feeling sorrow, and every time we're upset and we're angry, we begin to look at those kind of movements in our feelings and our thoughts, and we might ask ourselves, really, am I expecting much too much of life, of myself and others? Is that somewhere in all of that, is that what's happening? In our relationship to life and in the multiple of appearances of things and our, ex our experiences of the world, sometimes, and particularly in spiritual life, it's, one has to, I think, has to be clear about it that, like any other activity, it's not safe. It's not an easy, ex not, things are not easy to explore, to go deeply into ourselves. And sometimes we notice that with the impact of the world which is around us, and I think particularly human beings to human beings as especially, that sometimes human beings behave in ways which we really don't like. We find so utterly intolerable. We cannot imagine how such a person or people could behave in such a way and that the impact of that, sometimes it's very dramatic, of course, but sometimes, and what I've got in mind here, sometimes the impact of a person's or persons is kind of, gradu it feels like it's gradually corrosive. It's not anything intense and startling and, and brutalized, but sometimes it's that insidious undermining of another human being and putting the person down and, and dismissing the person and making the person feel small and wretched. And when that goes on day in and day out, that person, whoever that woman, that man might be, that person is, is going to inherit the personality of that. The person will internalize that impression and that person in the course of days, weeks, months and the year probably will begin to feel, I am nothing, I am small, I am nobody. 
because the other person has had, has, is retaining such a strong view of the other person. They can't see the person. They can only see through the darkness of their own eyes. And I think sometimes we do really have to look to ourselves and we have to look into situations with our honesty and, and hopefully affection with each other, being the, in honesty with each other, but to notice and to ask ourselves, is there anybody in my life who I am undermining? I find myself systematically putting down for what they do, what they don't do, and how they dress, and how they eat, and how they sleep, or whatever it might be. How they work, how they study. We're not really relating to the person. We're in a dreadful prison of our own projections and ideas. Our own notions of what's better for somebody else. And sometimes we do, I think we do genuinely have some real soul-searching to do with ourselves. Spirituality is respect for life, no matter what. Finding ways to communicate honestly and effectively and, and truthfully. But never insidiously, never nagging, nagging, nagging. It's incredibly destructive extremely hurtful and no wonder people end up full of rage. Sometimes, as I say in spirituality, it's a life of uh, risk, but the best of risks, because it risks for the best. It risks waking up, it risks living in an enlightened way, it risks heart filled with warmth. That's the risk. So often we haven't got time for that kind of risk. Sometimes in our relationship and our looking at the way the world impacts on us and we impact on the world, we begin to, as we say, we open, start opening the heart. And opening the heart like a choiceless awareness and observation in life, that in our opening of the heart, the world itself can reach in a little bit more. One can't say, I'll open the heart, but I'll only open it to the kindness. i only open it to that, those people who treat me really nicely and really warmly. Well, whose heart wouldn't open to that? If someone comes and says, I love you very much, you're the most beautiful, exquisite, kind, friendly, I'm just so happy to have you as my friend, whose heart's going to say, no, 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 don't, don't, <laughs> don't tell me. Some people do, don't tell me that, don't tell me that. So heart easily opens to affection, to love, to friendship, to kindness, to the warmth of touch and humanity. But when we speak of heart opening in spiritual life, we take that for granted because it's natural and it's normal. But heart opening means we begin to include more. We start moving out of the periphery of our inner circles and we say heart opening means that which is unfamiliar for a ho open heart. That which I'm just not used to actually e expressing and revealing and showing. Then we say, ah, oh, heart, this is heart opening. And situations like this provide us with some opportunity and some trust for heart to open. But even in that heart opening which takes place, still, even in this environment, as we had the situation today, 
with the ram, even in this environment, cannot be guaranteed and secure. As long as there are people around, in this case, people and animals around, and sometimes you're not sure who's what, but <laughs> sometimes when the situation's around, the capacity of... Heart, um, God, I lost the thread. <laughs> the capacity of heart open is really challenged to the nth. And I was very touched today, if I may say, with the situation for uh, uh, Patricia and the circumstances uh, there. Because in, after the first sitting this morning and, and getting some more uh, information about the events which took place on the other side of the uh, uh, gate there with this uh, uh, ram and it's uh, making an acquaintance, to put it most mildly, with the person. There's a, there's a situation which no one could have foreseen, no one could have foretold of the world, in the, this case the form of the ram making it uh, registering itself most decisively. And in that particular situation, enough that in just the stroking of this uh, animal, in a way to keep it, I think, as I understand, to some degree at bay, the ram demanded more. This should be striking bells in here. <laughs> One's got some attention. <laughs> One likes this attention. <laughs> you see what I mean? I'm not sure what's what. One likes this attention, one starts moving, and one starts demanding more. I want more attention. <laughs> and then the bullying aspect starts coming in, and uh, in this situation, which could have been a, a genuinely a, a serious uh, situation, the person, Patricia, was knocked over, there was some uh, concussion there, and uh, quite some uh, bruise here, and then two other women, very uh, kindly and compassionately and, and bravely, went to her rescue. One stood in front of the lamb, uh, lamb, ram. <laughs> One stood in front of the ram and to keep it at bay while the other person has, uh, helped to um, move the person. And in that, in that situation there, how to? Is where that was taking place, the person was telling me that in the exploration of heart opening and in, a, and in awareness and seeing the fears which were occurring in that situation and uh, every wish to keep that ram as far away as possible. And then she told me that the ram then began to withdraw and sometimes understand me thinks, ah, the ram is backing off, moving off, but it wasn't withdrawing at all. It was getting ready to launch, <laughs> and it did. And I was very touched by the uh, capacity of the people concerned to, to deal with this and the, uh, the very good spirit, if I may say, that took place afterwards. And so I had suggested uh, to the managers that it would be uh, useful for a uh, sign to be put up there at the gate, beware of the ram. And I met then another thought came and, uh, and uh, looking, at the, looking at the situation and since coming here I've 
heard two new words, which seem to be the buzzwords of our time that changed from a year ago. And one of them was dysfunctional family. And the other one was the little child in us. I wasn't hearing these <laughs> concepts a year ago. So I had, was wondering whether the ram had come from a dysfunctional family. <laughs> so in... So then in giving consideration to the, the, the ram, I thought, well, we shouldn't just... It sounds rather unfair just to name it ram, so I thought we, perhaps we should give it a name. So I thought of um, Sylvester Stallone's name, Rambo. <laughs> but I wasn't quite, quite sure about that. Then the other name which came to mind was Ram Das, and I... <laughs> But, but he is such a kindly man, I don't... <laughs> so... <laughs> so in the situations where we're exposed to, to situations, there's the impact which takes place. And the impact of the world registering itself very strongly and sometimes, of course, very, very painfully upon us. And, and such, when there is impact, it registers in our system, our life, our organism itself, and our emotions and our experiences of life are very much because we're sensitive creatures. I think we're deeply sensitive beings. That the impact of the world can strike us in such a way that it leaves real marks upon us. But there's... And in that, one has to expect, I feel, when something has impacted on us, that not that so much that time itself heals, though that's a factor in it, but it's time with wisdom which heals. And sometimes we, the wisdom is such to know what is memory, to know the impact of such situations upon our lives and to live our lives as well and as clearly as we can, one day at a time, and to uh, allow through the resources available for healing to take place. But sometimes we notice, and people say and report, that there's an impact of a situation near or far ago, and the registration of that seems years later to be lingering, still with us, like a shadow in the night. And spiritual life says we can be free from the shadow. We can be liberated from that. We can live a life which is quite boundless, doesn't feel the shadow of the old. And I wonder what kind of relationship we can have with life. I wonder what, what kind of way in which we begin to we truly acknowledge what has taken place. We may feel moved to investigate and inquire through the skillful resources which are available. Yet the genuine wish and and movement inside of us is to be free from the old. To be free from the old, in this case the old which is painful. So our spirit is not dampened by yesterday or yesteryear. And sometimes in those painful situations we are coming from, there's a transition which takes place. And it's a kind of transition which says, like, if one has been bruised by circumstances of life, and perhaps very deeply bruised, we feel the mark of it, we feel the colour of it in a way in our emotional life, 
And though the situation is old, the bruising is there. And sometimes with our thoughts, especially, the consciousness touches on that bruising. We feel that, 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 the impact of that. Just like if we've got a bruise on our leg or a wound on our leg and we touch it, we feel it. And so sometimes we, we, we seem to have clear space for us. And then thought, consciousness or circumstance touch upon it. We feel the pain of it again. Days, weeks, years, decades sometimes. And it only shows to us extraordinary creatures we are that we can touch things. But yet in that very touch, in that moment, uh, when we take the pressure off ourselves, when we're respectful to ourselves, then we give space around this past, recent or distant. We acknowledge it there totally, and in our giving space we can heal. We can heal each other. And we're human enough to acknowledge at times, intentionally or through circumstances, we touch that spot again. And sometimes the touch of that spot, of that pain, comes to us through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue and the touch. Something reminds us of that old hurt and it touches us and we feel the sensation of it. And we know how close not only we live to today, but we know how close we live to yesterday and yesteryear as well. And how could it be any other way? Sometimes in our explorations and these meditations and observations of life, help in a way, I think one of the valuable aspects of it is that it helps in a genuine way with all the trust that's required from us to be able to see what we might say is what is what. What is what? And in a very simple way, what is what can be make a simple division. What is past, what is present, and what is future? And the reason that we highlight in these teachings the here and now, a certain tangibleness which is present in the here and now, is to help us sense this at this juncture in your life and my life is where I am. This is where I have my life, my heart, my being, my presence, my impact, your impact. This is where, this is where it's actually happening for us. And that sense of this is where it's actually happening, this is what is, then contributes to help making stand out what was and what might be. And if you and I think that the idea of tomorrow and next year is going to be such that it will be an improvement on today by following up the idea, this is terrible delusion. Understand? If one thinks the idea about tomorrow, next week, next year, is going to be an improvement, is going to be better, simply by the pursuit of the idea, this is terrible delusion. There's never any happiness in just blindly following up something in the vague, self-deceiving hope that it's going to be better. So we see this here, now, this present, this moment, in fact, is all that we have. But it's big enough for us to live with happiness. It's fast enough to be touched by what is immeasurable. It's extraordinary enough for our heart to be awakened to. 
and it gives us the potential for tremendous happiness. And that thought that it's going to be better, better by going here, by seeing this person, by doing, doing that, is really to miss the point of life, because the point's where we are. Sometimes in our relationship to life and our, the dynamics of our relationship to the world, I think one of the wonderful things about life is, is as the saints and the mystics and the sages have said and will, will say until perhaps their dying breath, of the mysterium tremendum, the tremendous mystery that life is. And sometimes, and I think, the one of the great impacts on the world of us, and I think we need a revolution to change it, and that is the impact of forcing us as human beings to be spellbound by the thirst for knowledge. To be spellbound by it. Instead of acting and responding wisely to the validity of knowledge at particular times, it, we are tyrannized by it. We are mercilessly pursued by knowledge. And if a person doesn't read the newspapers and doesn't watch the box and doesn't read all the right magazines and, and the right books and has no interest in that, frequently the person is made to feel an ignoramus. The person will say, oh, I don't really know anything that's going on in the world and know nothing about it. And one feels, I should, I should, I should know a lot more. And there's all this knowledge, this acquisition of knowledge. What is it? Where has it got us? Are we any the happy for it? Is there any sense of joy out of it? Is there any discovery, mysterium, tremendum? So perhaps in our culture and in our society, if we speak of renunciation and giving up, it may mean including, as an important field, the giving up of not all, but much of the knowledge. So to create some opportunity for space in our lives so that the book isn't a division between the human being and discovery. Some books, wonderfully insightful and touch us deeply, and I think perhaps poetry gets to the closest to the truth of things in language. But sometimes you know, you know deep in your heart, that too many books obscure discovery. And the Buddha, if I may say, has warned frequently about the excesses of knowledge. Too much information. So if we're going to be open, if we're going to live with a, and explore what that means for us, that exploration with us will include the touch of the eyes and the ears and the nose and the smell and the tastes and the touch and the world and all that which is everyday but wonderful. And sometimes with mindfulness and the value of mindfulness for us is in a way I think it's genuinely choiceless in a deeper sense of it. And what I mean, what I mean by that, here we have the opportunity to live in a conscious way in the world, to live consciously. We don't know if there's past lives, future lives, and all of that I 
put in the area of speculation. But we do know, we have some sense that we are here. And in a way, being mindful is synonymous with being a conscious human being, living consciously. Consciously of the whole varieties and fields of experiences. And sometimes in the mindfulness there is a support in the mindfulness with a certain kind of wisdom. And the wisdom is such that we can just see, just hear, just smell, just taste, just touch, just respond to. And there's a kind of, almost a quiet joy in that, a quiet sense of connectedness and appreciation for the little and the ordinary things of daily life. Our ambitions and our, the grossness of our ambitions <coughs> seem to be a distraction to something which is rather intangible but precious and sublime. Sometimes in those quiet moments we just feel that preciousness of things and the sublimity of life. We've allowed ourselves to be quiet, to be touched by that. And if we allow ourselves to go deeply with that and explore that very deeply, something very beautiful begins to happen to a human being. Something inside of us begins to happen in which there's the mindfulness of the object. Object seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, breathing, thinking, feeling, whatever it might be. And that world becomes a world which is familiar and known. But known with appreciation, known with recognition, known through experiencing. And sometimes in all of that, questions begin to rise, as it has been for some of you here. Questions begin to rise, well, who knows? Who knows this? Who, 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 who am I? Just who am I in this extraordinary field of things? How is it that I'm like I am? I am what I am. I'm living what I'm living. There's a sense of wonder and uncertainty and indefinability about who, who am I, what am I, what is my life, what is all this, what's all this I'm living through. And sometimes we begin to notice with ourselves that there's a sense of I am observing this life, I am conscious of this life, and being mindful of this life. And in that question of who am I, it's as though we want to get behind ourselves. We want to jump behind ourselves and say, well, what's that observing? What's that looking out there in this world? And so, as it were, get behind myself to see if there's something other, something bigger or different. So there's a certain kind of, sometimes for us, a relaxed appreciation and comfort with the world, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, and then deep inside this yearning for something perhaps different, other than. And sometimes one senses that mindfulness, that I, that sense of me, is right on the edge of something. And there's, as it, were, it seems like at times, there is the world of the known. We know each other, we see each other, we connect with each other. It's a certain familiarity of the world of the senses and experiences. Then there's some intimation of something unknown. And we wonder, can I <coughs> make the leap? Is it possible to go from known into unknown? And no matter how far I get back, how deep I go, there's always another one. <laughs> another one. Endless leaps into something bigger, different. And we my God, this life is so extraordinary, such an adventure. It's so 
I can't seem to be able, no matter how deep into my being I go, I don't seem to be able to make a point <coughs> or reach a place when I can say, <coughs> this is it. <laughs> that I've gone as far as I can go. Sometimes you see this wonder of this eye, and it's, in a way, it's sometimes a deep eternal quest for something extraordinary. And then sometimes we, we, we look at that and then we begin to see how the world is almost an interrelated network of knowing and not knowing. I can know with my senses and with my experiences a little bit of the vastness and yet I know how much I don't know, how little I have together and how much is it which is utterly unknown to me. I say, I wonder if this could be the key to something. I wonder in this knowing and not knowing there's something there which is a revelation to me. I have to be willing to sacrifice my holding on knowledge. I have to, I have to be willing to see how temporal and uh, relative all that is. And sometimes when I see this I which stands on the boundaries of the known, what I know, and what I don't know, it seems to be on the borderline there. Sometimes I begin to realize this I, this strange sense of me in this world. Perhaps that knowledge and all those efforts for that knowledge and all those experiences, perhaps I don't have to claim them anymore. Perhaps I don't have to take them as somehow belonging to me. And sometimes when one senses with one's meditations, with one's contemplations and looking into life, one senses in another kind of way, I can't go any further. Because no matter how far I go, there's always further to go. Therefore I cannot go any further. And sometimes we begin to sense. Now perhaps none of all of this which is going on, in some extraordinary way, perhaps none of it belongs to me. And perhaps in some way our giving up, our letting go, our surrender, in some way is that we have to surrender it all. It's as though we have to give everything back. We've taken from this world and said it's mine, this is what I've got, this is what the world has given me, and this makes me who I am. And in the spiritual life we go look into things so deeply and we say, I can't say that anymore. I can't say any of it belongs to me. And all that I can be sense is that it all belongs to life. It all belongs to nature and that it all has to go back because it does go back. And sometimes we begin to sense actually we have no life of our own at all. That life is being lived and that all is to be offered back. And sometimes one hears from deep down inside of oneself words that have been said from generation and generation of women and men in the contemplative life and, the, and those women and men ha, ha, have said there is that which is birthless, that which is deathless. And sometimes when we heard those words they all seem rather vague and abstract and detached and you know what does that mean, how can anybody be birthless? It's just, and and, and we've, we've, we've puzzled over that, we've 
looked in our meditation, think, what the hell is he talking about? She's talking about etc. And sometimes we now going deep in our explorations of things. We see when nothing is of me, nothing is of mine. It all is to be returned. It's all to go back. And in that all being given back because it was never ours in the first place, whatever, whatever this is, there's that whisper, there's that message, there's that sense, that uh, understanding of birthless and deathless. Not vague, not abstract, not something far away, but something more clearly evident, dare I say, more clearly evident than the idea of birth and death. More obvious than colour is to a person with good eyesight. Because it's all been gone back. And the spiritual life, therefore, I say, offers wonderful wonder and mystery. And then our words fail us. May all beings see into life. May all beings see into the nature of things. May all beings be touched by the deathless. So let's have a couple of quiet minutes together, shall we please? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.